Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I am your host, Isabella Gutierrez, and today we're going to continue reading The Scarlet Letter, Chapter 17, The Pastor and His Parishioner. Now, without further ado, happy listening! Slowly, as the minister walked, he had almost gone by before Hester Prine could gather voice enough to attract his observation. At length, she succeeded. Arthur Dimsdale, she said, faintly at first, then lather and hoarsely. Arthur Dimsdale, who speaks? answered the minister. Gathering himself quickly, he stood more erect, like a man taken by surprise in a mood to which he was reluctant to have witnesses. Throwing his eyes anxiously in the direction of the voice, he indistinctly beheld a form under the trees, clad in garments and so somber, and so little relieved from the gray twilight into which the clouded sky and the heavy foliage had darkened the noontide, that he knew not whether it were a woman or a shadow. It may be that his pathway through life was haunted thus by a specter that had stolen out from among his thoughts. He made a step nigher and discovered the scarlet leather. Hester, Hester Prine, said he, is it thou, art thou in life? Even so, she answered, and such life has been mine these seven years past. And thou, Arthur Dimsdale, dost thou yet live? It was no wonder that they thus questioned one another's actual and bodily existence, and even doubted of their own. So strangely did they meet in the dim wood that it was like the first encounter in the world beyond the grave of two spirits who had been intimately connected in their former life, but now stood coldly shuddering in mutual dread, as not yet familiar with their state, nor wanted the companion of disembodied beings." each a ghost and awe-stricken at the other ghost. They were awe-stricken likewise at themselves because the crisis flung back to them their consciousness and revealed to each other, to each heart, its history and experience as life never does, except at such breathless epochs. The soul beheld its features in the mirror of the passing moment. It was with fear and tremendously, and as it were, by a slow reluctant necessity that Arthur Dimsdale put forth his hand, chill as death, and touched the chill hand of Hester Prine. The grasp, cold as it was, took away what was dearest in the interview." They now felt themselves, at least, inhabitants of the same sphere. Without a word more spoken, neither he nor she, assuming the guidance, but with an unexpressed consent, they glided back into the shadow of the woods, whence Hester had emerged, and sat down in the heap of moss where she and Pearl had before been sitting. When they found voice to speak, it was, at first, only to other remarks and inquiries such as any two acquaintances might have made, about the gloomy sky and threatening storm, and next, the health of each. Thus they went onward, not boldly, but step by step, into the themes that were brooding deepest in their hearts. So long estranged by fate and circumstances, they needed something slight and casual to run before and throw open the doors of intercourse, so that their real thoughts might be led across a threshold." After a while, the minister fixed his eyes on Hester Prines. Hester, said he, hast thou found peace? She smiled dearly, looking down upon her bosom. Hast thou? she asked. None. Nothing but despair, he answered. 
What else could I look for, being what I am, and leading such a life as mine? Were I an atheist, a man devoid of conscience, a wretched with coarse and brutal instincts, I might have found peace long ere now. Nay, I never should have lost it. But, as matters stand with my soul, whatever the good capacity there originally was in me, all of God's gifts and were the choicest have become the ministers of spiritual torment. Hester, I am most miserable. The people reverence thee, said Hester, and surely thou workest good among them. Doth this bring thee no comfort? More misery, Hester, only more misery, answered the clergyman, with a bitter smile. As concerns the good which I may appear to do, I have no faith in it. It must needs be a delusion. What can a ruined soul like mine effect towards the redemption of other souls, or a polluted soul towards their purification? And as for the people reverence, would that it were turned to scorn and hatred? Canst thou deem it, Hester, a consolation that I must stand up in my pulpit and meet so many eyes turned upwards to my face as if the light of heaven were beaming from it, must see my flock hungry for the truth and listening to my words as if a tongue of Pentecost were speaking, and then look inward and discern the black reality of what they idolize? I'm... I have laughed in bitterness and agony of heart at the contrast between what I seem and what I am, and Satan laughs at it. You wrong yourself in this, said Hester gently. You have deeply and sorely repented. Your sin is left behind you in the days gone long past. Your present life is not less holy in every truth than it seems in people's eyes. Is there no reality in the Pentanus thus sealed by and witnessed by good works, and wherefore should it not bring you peace? No, Hester, no, replied the clergyman. There is no substance in it. It is cold and dead, and can do nothing for me. Of penance I have had enough. Of penitence there has been none. Else I should long ago have thrown off these garments of mock holiness, and have shown myself to mankind as they will see me at judgment seat. Happy are you, Hester, that wear the scarlet leather openly upon your bosom. Mine burns in secret. Thou little knowest what relief it is. After the torment of seven years, cheat, to look in an eye that recognizes me for what I am. Had I one friend, or were my worst enemy, to whom, when sickened with the praises of all other men, I could daily betake myself and be known as the vilest of all sinners, methinks my soul might keep itself alive thereby." Even thus much of truth would save me. But now it is all falsehood, all emptiness, all out death. Hester Prine looked into his face, but hesitated to speak. Yet, uttering his long-restrained emotion so vehemently as he did, his words here offered her the very point of circumstances in which to interpose what she came to say. She conquered her fears and spoke. Such a friend as thou hast even now wished for said she, with whom to weep over thy sin thou hast in me, the partner of it. Again she hesitated, but brought out the words with an effort. Thou hast long such an enemy, and dwellest with him under the same roof. The minister started to his feet, gasping for breath, and clutching at his heart, as if he would have torn it out of his bosom. Ha! What sayest thou? cried he. An enemy under my own roof? 
What mean you? Hester Prime was now fully sensible of the deep injury for which she was responsible to this unhappy man in permitting him to lie for so many years or indeed for a single moment at the mercy of one whose purposes could not be other than malevolent. The very congenuity of this of his enemy, beneath whatever mask the latter might conceal himself, was enough to disturb the magnetic sphere of being so sensitive as Arthur Dimsdale. There had been a period when Hester was less alive to this consideration, or perhaps, in the misanthropy of her own trouble, she left the minister to bear what she might picture herself as more tolerable doom, but of as of late, since the night of his vigil, all her sympathies towards him had been both softened and invigorated. She now read his heart more accurately. She doubted not that the continual presence of Roger Chillingsworth, the secret poison of his malignity, inflecting all the air about him, and his authorized interference as a physician with the minister's physical and spiritual infirmities, that these bad opportunities had been turned into cruel purpose. By means of them, the sufferer's conscience had been kept in an irritated state, the tendency of which was not to cure by wholesome pain, but to disorganize and corrupt his spiritual being. In result, on earth could hardly fail to be insanity, and hereafter the eternal alientation from the good and true, of which madness is perhaps the earthly type. Such was the ruin to which she had brought the man once. Nay, why should we not speak of it? Still so passionately loved, Hester felt that the sacrifice of the clergyman's good name and death itself, as she already told Roger Chillingsworth, would have been infinitely preferable to the alternative which she had taken upon herself to choose. And now, rather than have this grievous wrong to confess, she would gladly have lain down in the forest leaves and died there at Arthur Dimsdale's feet. Oh, Arthur, cried she, forgive me. In all things else, I have striven to be true. Truth was that one virtue which I might have held fast and did hold fast through all extremity, save when thy good, thy life, thy fame were put in question. Then I consented to a deception. But a lie is never good, even though death threatened on the other side. Dost thou not see what I would say? That old man, the physician, he whom they call Roger Chillingsworth, he was my husband. The minister looked at her for an instant, with all the violence of passion, which intermixed with more shapes than one, with his higher, purer, softer qualities, was in fact the portion of him which the devil claimed, and through which he sought to win the rest. Never was there a blacker or fiercer frown than Hester now encountered. For a brief space it has lasted. It was dark transfiguration, but his character had been so much enfeebled by suffering that even its lower energies were incapable of more than temporary struggle. He sank down to the ground and buried his face in his, in his hands. I might have known it, murmured he. I did know it. Was not the secret told me in the natural recoil of my heart at the first sight of him, and as often as I have been with him, why did I not understand, O oh, Hester Prine, thou little, little now knowest all the horror of this thing, and the shame, the indelicacy, the horrible ugliness of this exposure of a sick and guilty heart to the very eye that would glow over it. Woman, woman, thou art accountable for this. I cannot forgive thee. Thou shalt forgive me, cried Hester, flinging herself 
on the falling leaves beside him. Like God punished, thou shalt forgive. With sudden desperate tenderness, she threw her arms around him and pressed his head against her bosom. Little caring through his cheek rested on the scarlet leather. He would have released himself, but strove in vain to do so. Hester would not set him free, lest he shook her sternly in the face. All the world had frowned on her. For seven long years had it frowned upon this lonely woman, and still she bore it all. Not ever once turned away her firm, sad eyes. Heaven, likewise, had frowned upon her, and she did not die. But the frown on this pale, weak, sinful, and sorrow-stricken man was what Hester could not bear. And live. Wilt thou yet forgive me, she repeated over and over again. Wilt thou not frown? Wilt thou forgive? I do forgive you, Hester, replied the minister, at length with a deep utterance, out of the abyss of sadness, but no anger. I freely forgive you now. May God forgive us both. We are not, Hester, the worst sinners in the world. There is one worse than even the polluted priest. That old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. He has violated in cold blood and sanctity of a human heart. Thou and I, Hester, never did so. Never, never, whispered she. What we did has a con consecration of its own. We felt it so, and we said so to each other. Hast thou forgotten it? Hush, Hester, said Arthur Dimsdale, rising from the ground. No, I have not forgotten. They sat down again, side by side, and hand clasped in hand on the mossy trunk of the fallen tree. Life had never brought them a gloomier hour. It was the point whither their pathway had so long been tre trending, the darkening ever as it stole along, and yet it enclosed a charm that made them linger upon it and claim another and another, and after all, another moment. The forest was obscure around them and creaked with a blast that was passing through it. The bows were tossing heavily above their heads, while one solemn old tree groaned dolefully to another, as if telling the sad story of the pair that sat beneath and constrained to forebode evil to come. And yet they lingered. How dreary looked the forest track that led backward to the settlement, where Hester Prine must take up again the burden of her ignominy and the minister the hollow mockery of his good name. So they lingered an instant longer. No golden light had ever been so precious as the gloom of this dark forest. Here, seen only by his eyes, the scarlet leather need not burn into the bosom of the fallen woman. Here, seen only by her eyes, Arthur Dimsdale, false to God and man, might be, for one moment, true. He started at a thought and that suddenly occurred to him. Hester, cried he, here's a new horror. Roger Chillingsworth knows your purpose to reveal his true character. Will he continue then to keep our secret? What will now be the course of his revenge? There is a strange secrecy in his nature, replied Hester thoughtfully, and it has grown upon him by the hidden practices of his revenge. I deem it not likely that he will betray the secret. He will doubtless seek other means of satisfying his dark passion. And I... How am I to live longer, breathing the same air with this deadly enemy, exclaimed Arthur Dimsdale, shrinking within himself and pressing his hand nervously against his heart, a gesture that had grown involuntarily with him. Think for me, Hester. Art thou strong? Resolve for me. Thou must dwell no longer with this man. 
said Hester slowly and firmly. Thy heart must be no longer under his evil eye. It were far worse than death, replied the minister. But how to avoid it? What choice remains to me? Shall I lie down again on these withered leaves where I cast myself when thou didst tell me what he was? Must I sink down there and die at once? Alas, what a ruin has befallen thee, said Hester with tears gushing into her eyes. Wilt thou die for every weakness? There is no other cause. The judgment of God is on me, answered the conscience-stricken priest. It is too mighty for me to struggle with. Heaven would show mercy, rejoined Hester. Hast thou but the strength to take advantage of it? Be thou strong for me, answered he. Advise me what to do. In this world, then, so narrow, exclaimed Hester Prine, fixing her deep eyes on the ministers and instinctively exercising a magentic power over a spirit so shattered and subdued that it could hardly hold itself erect. Doth the universe lie within the compass of yonder town, which only a little time ago was but a leaf-strewn desert, as lonely as around us, whither leads yonder forest track? Backward to the settlement thou sayest, yes, but onward too. Deeper it goes and deeper into the wilderness, less pain plainly to be seen at every step, until some new miles hence, the yellow leaves will show no vestige of a white man's tread. There thou art free. So, brief a journey would bring thee from a world where thou hast been most wretched to one where thou mayest still be happy. Is there not shade enough in all the boundless forests to hide thy heart from the gaze of Roger Chillingsworth? Yes, Hester, but only under the fallen leaves, replied the minister with a sad smile. Then, there is the broad pathway of the sea, continued Hester. It brought thee hither. If thou so chose it, it will bear thee back again in our native land, whether in so remote rural, rural village or in vast London, or surely in Germany, in France, in pleasant Italy, thou wouldst be beyond his power and knowledge. And what hast thou to do with all these iron men and their opinions? They have kept thy better part in bondage too long already. It cannot be, answered the minister, listening as if he were called upon to realize a dream. I am powerless to go. Wretched and sinful as I am, I have had no other thought than to drag on my earthly existence in the sphere where providence hath placed me. Lost as my own soul is, I would still do what I may for other human souls. I dare not quit my post, though an unfaithful sentinel, whose sure reward is death and dishonor, when his jury watch shall come to an end. Thou art crushed under the seven years' weight of misery, replied Hester, fervently resolved to buoy him up with her own energy. But thou shalt leave it all behind thee. It shall not cumber thy steps as thou treadest along the forest path. Neither shalt thou fright the ship with it, if thou prefer to cross the sea. Leave this wrecked ruin here where it hath happened. Middle no more with it. Begin all anew. Hast thou exhausted possibility in the failure of this one trial? Not so. 
The future is yet full of trial and success. There is happiness to be enjoyed. There is good to be done. Exchange this false life for thine for a true one. B. If thy spirit summon thee to such a mission, the teacher and apostle of the red men, or as is more thy nature, be a scholar and a sage among the wisest and most renowned of the cultivated world. Preach, write, act, do anything, save to lie down and die. Give up this name of Arthur Dimsdale and make thyself another and a high one, such as thou canst wear without fear or shame. Why shouldst thou tarry so much as one other day in the torments that have so gnawed into thy life, that have made thee feeble and will do and to do? That will leave thee powerless even to repent. Up and away, O Hester, cried Arthur Dimsdale, in whose eyes a fitful light, kindled by her enthusiasm, flashed up and died away. Thou tellest of running a race to a man whose knees are tottering beneath him. I must die here. There is not a strength or courage left in me to venture into the wide, strange, difficult world alone. It was the last expression of the dependency of a broken spirit. He lacked energy to grasp the better fortune that seemed within his reach. He repeated one, the word, alone, Hester. Thou shalt not go alone, answered she in the deepest whisper. Then all was spoken. All right, and that was chapter 17. Now, I don't know if you guys could tell by my voice. And also, another chapter is the same thing has happened. When something that I read touches my heart, I kind of pause a lot and my voice kind of softens. I don't know if you've noticed it because I'm speaking in my normal voice right now. But then when something touches me, I... I, I, I kind of speak like this because my heart is touched. That's what happened for the entire... Well, not for the entirety, but for 90% of this chapter, okay? Hester and Arthur are just too cute. And it's such a sad love story. My, I, felt, I felt touched, okay? And I hope you guys felt too because... Oh, so pure. <laughs> not really. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> um... This was also a pretty short chapter. Well, it was it was longer than the past two chapters, but it was still relatively short compared to some of the other chapters uh, we've read before, right? And it's a conversation between Arthur and Hester. And since it's a short chapter, it's pretty straightforward. And Hester, she... She warned him about Roger Chillingsworth. And Arthur, he comes to a realization that he always felt that something was off about the old man, but he just he just didn't notice. He couldn't his mind couldn't compute, right? And when Hester said that, hey, Roger Roger's my ex-husband. Well, husband, because they haven't really divorced. Which I think is also bad in this um era but um anyways that's besides the point he he said like at first he's shocked but then he's more um how do i say it? disappointed that he he says that he knew all along only that he he did not see it he did not try to 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 look past that and like see roger for what he truly is and Arthur, he's just broken. Now, 
I'm just gonna make like a quick little intermission and do a small little comparison between these two characters because obviously Hester has um, aged like a fine wine while um, similar to Roger where I compared him to what did I compare him to like cheese or no I compared him to a banana um similar to Roger aging like a banana um Arthur he's also been aging like a banana but um you know what I want to change Roger to milk okay nobody likes spoiled milk it's absolutely disgusting okay so that's Roger because he's a disgusting person I really don't like him <laughs> And we're going to switch Arthur to a banana. Because, you know, Arthur, he's so sensitive and stuff. So, you know, when when a banana ripens up too much, it's, like, all soft and mushy. Um, so that's going to be Arthur. So he's also been deteriorating. And it's interesting to see how these two characters, they committed the same, cr- um, well, yeah, crime. Even though it's not really a crime anymore, but you know and during that time so based on the time they committed crime they're sinners right they're bad quote-unquote bad people um so we see how hester she grows as a person and learns to overcome it even though she's still tormented by the leather as, as we've seen in i think it was like two chapters ago one chapter ago um she's still she still found a way to grow, right? While Arthur, what he's been doing is, you know, in a sense, slowly dying. He's deteriorating. He's weak, mushy, like a banana. (laughs) Sorry, I keep on laughing at my analogy. But this is not funny. Yes, it is. We're all friends here, okay? We're a team. We're in this together. Um, But now you... And this is also, I want to touch up a bit in, like, you know, gender stereotypes. Because usually it's stereotypical that the women, women in general, are seen as, you know, weaker, inferior. And the man is supposed to be, like, this kind of knight in shining armor. Ooh, look at me, I'm so strong and tough. Mm, You know? But here we see Arthur, he is literally laying on the ground... And he's looking at Hester and he's saying, Hester, what do I do? Please think for me. Do something. I need your help. I need your guidance. And Hester, she gives him guidance. And that is breaking a gender norm. And this book was written. Well, I don't know when this book was written. I I knew it, but this book was written a long time ago. And that in literature is very rare especially during when this book was written right so props to the author nathaniel shout out to you (laughs) but um yeah but now continuing to where what to what we were talking about in comparing these two characters um arthur he asks hester for help and hester says you don't need to be here okay you can go back to england or somewhere in europe and live another life where you're not being tormented because earlier in the conversation arthur said that what torments him the most is how people they look up to him and idolize him when he's actually not 
the pure priest that people make him out to be. So Hester's just like, you don't have to be here. You can leave, okay? You can you can leave. You don't have to deal with this. And <laughs> Arthur, he's so weak. And I'm not making fun of him. He's he, he's like physically weak. The book even describes him like that. Imagery. Imagery is important. Um, he says, I, I don't have the strength to go on alone out in the world. It It's terrifying. I can't do this. And then the chapter ends with Hester saying that he doesn't have to go alone. Now, even though... I mean, I haven't read the other chapter. But this is going to be a prediction, which I'm pretty sure is going to be true. Hester's going to offer to go with him. So she's going to bring little Pearl with him to wherever they, they're they going to go. And they're going to live a happy life to get away from the devil, Roger Chillingsworth. Ooh, spooky, scary, right? I don't know if it's actually going to work. But I'm, I am inferring slash predicting. I'm going to say infer. Infer is more of um, the correct term to use with this um i'm going to infer that hester's gonna say you don't have to go alone i can go with you they are so cute this is so pure oh my god my heart my heart this is really touching up on my feelings now also this might seem kind of out of place and not that analytical but they the book says that they stayed there for a really long time what about Pearl? They forgot about Pearl. Is Pearl just running around the forest? Like a little elfling freaking um collecting twigs. But I mean that this this commentary was not that much of analysis because the conversation was pretty straightforward, but I was able to uh make some comparison between the two characters and touch up on a gender um discussion that hopefully we'll be able to expand on uh further into the book now i just wanted to take this time and explain to you guys um the commentaries i make are a one take commentary and this is because i want you guys to hear me stutter and gather my thoughts because i wanted to make an illusion that we are actually having a conversation about this book and to establish that, you know, thoughts can change. Just like I changed the banana analogy to Arthur instead of Roger Chillingsworth and I made Roger a milk, right? When you're having a, re- um, a real life conversation, like in person, things will be said that don't really make sense at the time, but it's what comes out of your comes out of the top of your head see this is an example and i want to give you guys that experience where we're reading this well i'm reading it to you but we're reading this book together and we're having an actual discussion where thoughts are being gathered and we would stumble on our words and we interpret things freshly out of like freshly out of the oven right because as soon as I finish the chapter, I make this commentary section. I don't want to write down anything and seem like a robot. I want it to be kind of like an actual, you know, reading group discussion. And I hope you guys appreciate that. 
or like it. Um, but that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed chapter 17, and I'll be seeing you next time.